Well, we started a couple of weeks ago looking at the mortification of sin, putting sin to death, what that means. Uh, and as I shared with the class originally, and I'll share with any of you who are here for the first time perhaps, uh, I'm taking the bulk of my outline from a book <clears throat> from Brian Hedges' License to Kill. And uh, the sub, uh, subtitle is that it is a field manual for the mortification of sin. So I recommend that to you. I've used this book uh, three times uh, over at His Steps, teaching from it, completed three classes with that, and just, just completed one uh, with our guys. So uh, it's uh, good stuff. It's just a compilation, an orderly compilation of scriptures and how the Word of God comes to bear on that. But we looked at the first week as we looked at killing sin and what that means. Uh, we looked at its definition as we got into it, the definition of mortification, putting sin to death, the various times it's used in the Word of God. Paul, of course, weighs in on that in Romans eight thirteen. Peter weighs in on it later. Uh, you find it a number of times. And then uh, last week... Uh, in the chapter titled Toward Life and Death, we looked at why sin must be killed. And then today, our lesson is going to focus primarily around Romans chapter 7, uh, beginning in verse 14 there. Uh, a good lesson for us, a good lesson for every believer, because we find so much encouragement. I don't know about you, but when I think about what people like Paul went through, and oftentimes David and Peter, and certainly Daniel, and Joseph, and so many in the Word of God who were obedient to God and sometimes weren't obedient and suffered from it. We learn from their errors, their mistakes. But we learn how, how God deals with us when we falter and when we don't measure up and when we realize that as we're moving forward in our life, and we're examining our heart and life, a daily process that, you know, we don't measure up. And, of course, we know as believers, we know to focus upon the grace of God, focus upon the things that the Word of God gives us. Literally, Paul gives us a list of things to think upon, doesn't he? You know, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are good reports, so on and so forth. We have that. But once, once we come to know Christ and that personal relationship is there, and by that I mean that it is a reality... It's a reality in our life that we've been to a point of complete repentance. We've been to a point where we've repented of our sin, knowing full well that we bring nothing to the cross of Christ. We bring nothing. How could we? How could we be so bold as to think we bring something when He says plainly, the Word says, that our very righteousness is nothing more than filthy rags? Nothing. We know that. So we're totally dependent upon the grace of God. And at the same time, and I like to share it this way, maybe with a visual expression, God doesn't want us going around like this, okay, you know, I'm so humble and blessed. And No, He doesn't want us to do that. We ought to be excited about what God has done in our life because He is the victor. Well, we focus on that. And I love that. But every... Every believer, I like what Hedges says, he says, or even as a believer, and here's a pastor talking, he's honest enough to say that there's something in my life, in his life, in our lives, he uses the word hate. He says it hates God. I looked at that twice. Later he goes on and explains that he knows, he's identified 
of necessity because he's a human being, because he's serving the Lord, because the battle rages in his life. He's identified that area in his life where sin still reigns. Now, we know from studying it just from the Word of God that that is the unredeemed flesh in the life of a believer. Paul will refer to it in Romans chapter 7. He refers to it as indwelling sin, that sin that continues to live within him. And this is where the battle is. Well, at the same time, and I agree with Hedges, he says, but there is a new me. There is. There's a new me. There's a refashioned me. I love that. And that refashioned me is still under construction. It's still under construction. And it will never, ever be completed, at least in this life, but it will come to an end. It will come to an end one day. It's continually being renovated. We know this as that progressive sanctification process that continues in our life. What God did for us at the point of salvation through the cross of Christ, our justification was accomplished by Christ. We had nothing to do with that. Nothing to do with it. We came in faith, believing and repenting. And that's what we have. So when you think about what we bring to the table, well, that's what we bring to the table. We come, we hear the Word of God, and by God's grace, through the pulling of God's grace, we respond in faith and we repent. And I guess you could say, and I'll say, the the rest of it is all Christ. It's all Him. If there's anything about our will, our will must be changed by the Word of God. What we desire, what we consider to be priority in our life must, of necessity, be fashioned by the Word of God. Or else we'll find ourselves drifting a little off to the left or to the right or maybe even low or too high sometimes. But the point is we'll be missing the mark. And that's a pretty good definition for what? Sin. Right. Okay. So that's what... That's what happens. So that's what we're looking at. Well, this is a great comfort when we go to Romans chapter 7. And uh, we'll begin in a moment looking at, uh, beginning with verse 14. But that's why we like Romans, because we go there, this portion, because I love it all, but we go there and we find somebody, we find a person, we find an individual who's laying it out on the line about the difficulty about this, this literal war that Paul keeps talking about that rages. There is a war. There's a spiritual war that's going on within him, within inside him. But what does he tell us just before that? Maybe we should look at that. And I just picked a couple of verses because obviously we don't have time to go all the way through Romans or even the seventh chapter this morning. But I think it's important to look at verse 4. Paul Paul, prior to uh, verse 14 in chapter 7, says a number of things. Verse 4, he says, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who, has ra- who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit for God. So Paul understands this. He goes back talking about the law, and later he'll talk about the purpose of the law, what it can do and what it can't do. He's talking about a reality. He's going to talk about his past life in a few moments in the law. 
when he lived under the law. But in verse 6, he says, But now we've been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. I fear many times that when people set out in their life to, I don't know, maybe they reach a point of, uh, of a greater commitment uh, or whatever, uh, a greater purpose in their life to live for Christ, to discipline themselves in the Word of God, to maybe have specific times when they pray and a greater effort to be at church, all those things that if they're not careful, they, they actually find themselves moving toward what we would describe as legalism. In other words, they're doing those things for the sake of the thing. Okay, They lose sight of the fact that, hey, I'm really here to allow God to speak to me, so I need to be prepared to hear the Word of God. Or perhaps I'm really here because God wants me to serve, so I need to be open about an opportunity for service, rather than just some perfunctory effort at going through, checking the box, putting the dot in the box, and saying, well, see, there's my checklist. I've accomplished it. It's easy to slip off into legalism. It's so wonderful when you are in a fellowship where everybody, it seems, and certainly it's not everybody, but the vast majority of the people want to be there. One of the first things I noticed about this fellowship is that when church is over, you got to get a big old broom and run everybody out of here, okay? That's a wonderful thing. Nobody dashes for the parking lot. They want to, want to be here. They want to be in the fellowship. And there's so much to be gained from that. So when we talk about that or we talk about the law and so forth, we'll go into it a little bit further here in a moment. But I just throw that out to you as just, as just one little uh, thing you might want to be aware of because um, even as Christians, we find ourselves in difficult circumstances. You know, we have difficulties with our family life, perhaps through the week, certainly at work. Uh, kind of like a week like I've had this week. Uh, nothing tragic, but just, you know, opportunities to minister, really, but things that are, you know, taxing. Um, and we've, we get this attitude about church and so forth is really just a thing to be done. It's legalistic. Well, that doesn't work. And that's not what God wants from us. In Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Now, that's what He's done. He's redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. And this is what we want to remember. It's not wrong to focus upon the finished work of Jesus Christ when we experience a period in our life when we're low, or we experience a period in our life when we're low, maybe because we've been mistreated or we've been rejected, or it seems like life has just brought too much too fast upon us. But each and every time we do that, that we go back and we look at the fact that we've been redeemed from the necessity of perfection before a holy and righteous God. We've been redeemed from that. How so? God hasn't changed. His standard hasn't changed. He's still just as holy. Nothing impure can come into His presence. So what was the big change? We ride right over it sometimes. We, we treat it commonplace. And friends, it's His mercy and His grace 
and salvation. It's His mercy and grace and what He continues to apply and make available in our life through His Word and through the Holy Spirit. This is a wonderful, wonderful thing. This is where Christians ought to be living, remembering that Christ has taken it for us. He has become the curse for us. It's like a big dose of spiritual medicine. So that's where we are. That's what we're looking at today because that is our hope. That's, that's our strength in times of difficulty, particularly when we're not pleased with the way we've served our Lord. When we know that something is after us. You ever get that feeling? When you can't put sin away, usually it's thoughts. It's after you. I've got a good preacher friend, and we were talking once about uh, some passage. I don't remember he was preaching, but it had to do with demonic activity and so forth. He was preaching through a passage, and he said, he says, this is so hard. And I said, what do you mean it's hard? I said, you preached this before. He says, yeah, but I, you know, he's preaching about this demonic stuff and the influence and so forth. He says, I don't like it. I said, why not? He says, and I'll never forget that. He's a country boy. He said, because they swarm. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you start looking at all this and the reality of it and the truth of it, and it's just another sign that the devil does not want you to know the truth of his word, that there is an overcomer for us, that in Christ we are overcomers. And it manifests this continual war that's going on. And all we can do about that is acknowledge it, go to, go to the word of God, do what it says, be filled with his word, be emptied of the world, Crave the fullness of God's Spirit. Be in church. Be serving. Don't wear our feelings on our sleeve. All those other things. Long, long list there. But He didn't want us to do that. He quickly comes to snatch away the Word. That is a reality. A reality. So we should be filled more and more. Well, let's begin by just simply reading these verses, beginning with verse 14 of chapter 7 in Romans. Now look, this is by no means going to be some total exposition. That's not possible, okay? And I'm not capable. I don't have a problem telling you that. But I'll tell you what this will do. I trust that God will put you in a frame of mind to take what you get today and go home and open your Bible throughout this week and go deeper and deeper in the Word of God. Verse 14, the Apostle Paul is talking and he's following a section where he's talked about the law and what the law does and what the law doesn't do. And he'll mention it again. Verse 14, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I, he says, am of the flesh, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, But I do the very thing I hate. For if I do what I want, or or rather, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Think he's trying to make a point? That's the second time he said that. 
So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. That's his delight. For I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. What can we do when we realize this? We cry out to God, do we not? (laughs) We cry out to Him. And I see Paul doing that in verse 24. He says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Well, it begs the question, as we look at this passage, what's Paul speaking about? Is he speaking about his life as a true believer? I think most people probably think that. Not everybody thinks that. Certainly not all the commentators think that. Not all your Bible writers think that. But I'll share something with you this morning and maybe tell you up front. I certainly think that, and the material that I study says, yes, Paul is speaking of himself as a believer. If you go so far as to get a copy of this little book, it's so important to Hedges. He does a little piece in the back in the appendix, uh, a little section that I'm going to share with you now because it's, it's quite orderly. It, it mirrors much of the information I see, like from MacArthur Commentary and other places, where they're looking and picking things out of this passage that would tend uh, or specifically say, yes, this is what Paul's talking about. He's talking about his life as a believer. So before we jump into it verse by verse, let's look at this. He would give us, Hedges would, he would give us five reasons why that's so in looking at these scriptures. And the first is kind of uh, an English thing. Paul switches from the past tense. If you look at verses 7 through 13, he's talking in the past tense there, where he's talking about the impact of the law on him there, and then, uh, then he describes his experiences in the law of God in those verses, 7 through 13. But then he switches at verse 14, where we start today, to the present tense. Very specific. He switches from past tense to the present tense, and the present tense continues throughout the rest of that chapter, all the way, or, or chapter 7, all the way to the end of verse 25. He's also talking in the first person. He's talking about himself. And I found a note there. It said that actually uh, from verse 7 to verse 25 that he does that first person singular 46 times. Paul is talking about himself. He's talking about himself before he became a believer. And then when he begins in verse 14, he's talking about himself as a believer. So to me, that's compelling just from that standpoint and then also what would jump out at anyone who reads these passages and ponders them is the type of language that he uses it's basically language that you don't get from an unbeliever Paul expresses his approval and his delight in God's law now apart from salvation it's very difficult I can't imagine anyone who has an understanding of God's law and they're not saved (laughs) expressing their approval and their delight over it, okay? Because of what? There's no life in the law, is it? There's no salvation in the law. Paul understands that. In fact, he's just told us about that. 
as it related to the unredeemed person. In verse 14, he says that the law is spiritual. That's how he refers to the law. And in verse 16, he says that the law is good. God's law. Well, Paul, the law is good. You mean this impacting, you know, this thing that, that, that comes over your life or over anyone's life and makes them feel guilty? He says, yeah, that's good. Because he knows what's been provided for that. He knows what's happened to him. He knows, as it says, you know, without the law, he would not have understood sin. He would not have known sin. So from that standpoint, it's good. In verse 22, Paul expresses his delight in the law. He says, I do this, as it says, in the inner man. In verse 25, Paul speaks of serving the law, the law of God with his mind. So we know we don't put off the law because we're born again. No. He's just aware of grace. He understands the big picture there, as you might say. 1 Corinthians 2.14 would remind us, again, Paul, of course, writing, he says, but the natural man, and of course that's the unregenerated man, does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. So that's to say, how could Paul be of this kind of mindset were he not a true believer? So we see that there's definite evidence there from the Word of God that he is. And then again in Romans 8, 7, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. It's a hard thing to mimic, a very difficult thing to mimic. Someone might be good at that. I'm sure there are people who are. But to delight in the law of God, to say that it is spiritual, that it's good, and to dedicate yourself to serving it, that is to living by it. We don't disregard the law of God because we're born again. We don't throw the Ten Commandments out. No. We live as God has laid out His law. So he uses the phrase here also, inner being, which is another word for inner self. I think it was in verse 22. Yeah, in verse 22. And he says there's only two other times that he uses that, 2 Corinthians 4.16 and Ephesians 3.16. That was 2 Corinthians 4.16 and Ephesians 3.16. Certainly Paul, nobody would argue that when Paul's writing there, Paul is a Christian. Okay. Well, what else? He expresses, thirdly, he expresses antagonism against sin. Antagonism against sin. Why do unbelievers express against the law of God when they find themselves in trouble? Are they, you see them as an, an antagonist against sin? Are they angry at sin and the principle of sin in their life? What are they usually angry at? If they're lost in their sin, what would they be angry at? The law itself. Yeah, I find uh, on a on a more practical side of it, that's fine. But on a more practical side, that they're they're angry they got caught, or they're angry they got found out, or they might be angry about the consequences, perhaps, of their sin. You know, sin always brings a whole lot more than we ever bargained for. That's not what it's talking about here. Paul expresses antagonism against sin itself. He knows what it is. He's identified it in his life, and he wants it out. He wants it out. 
And he's gotten a taste, more than a taste, of what life is like when you live apart from sin. How, how upsetting it must be for Paul to have such a mission, such, such a responsibility, and to still have to deal with this. He wants it out, gone. That would be a Christian's response. In verse 15, Paul expresses his hate of the evil he does. He hates it. He hates that side when we yield. I mean, is your relationship against sin and against Satan and all that comes against you that when you get duped, when you're weak one day, you know, when you're, what's got things we looked at the other night, when you're, when you're tired, when, when you're hungry, sometimes he comes at you from the natural process or whatever. When you've been rejected, when you're overwhelmed, and before you know it, you've said something or you've neglected something, maybe even to those, those innocent little children who don't know what's going on. They just know mom and daddy, and you realize, oh, come here, I didn't mean that. You know, and you want to grab them up. And then you're off in the corner and you're saying, I, why did I do that? I hate that. I let my guard down. I let him get the best of me. It's really that kind of thing. And it's because of a principle that lives within us. We can't push it off on somebody else. It is a reality. The flesh remains. There is a battle. Verse 17, 18, and 20, Paul recognizes the utter corruption of his sinful disposition. In verse 23 and 24, Paul expresses the mortal conflict with sin and the misery this brings in his life. This is not how Paul describes himself in other places prior to his conversion. It's like if you go to Ephesians 3 and you look, Paul presents himself as confident. He's legalistic. He's self-righteous. He's a Pharisee. And that's his hope. That's the way he describes himself before. That's why he says, I can take everything that I've accomplished Everything worldly, everything I accomplished when I was of that mindset, and he calls it filth. I'm sure there's a more proper Greek word for it. And he says, I put it where it belongs. I put it up on the dunghill. That's where it goes. It's nothing because it was wrongly motivated. It was for the wrong reason. It led people astray. It doesn't matter how he felt about it or all the accolades he got for it. That's Paul. That's his life before. And now, this is how he sees it. He hates sin. We must have a holy hatred for sin. And like we looked at a couple of Sundays ago, like our Puritan father said, this this, uh, holy violence that we want to enact against it, it, it's, it's well worth our effort. It is a lifetime effort. And lest I take you to some low place here talking about the battle, please remember, we are overcomers. We overcome. Revelation tells us that we overcame. We have overcome. Like the others after us, they will overcome through the word of their testimony, through the power of the blood of the Lamb. It says they love not their lives unto death. In other words, there is evidence in their life of this overcoming spirit within them that's put there by Jesus Christ. That's what He's done for us. And when we look at this, it's so easy. It's, oh, I'm just so, I'm just so, I'm nothing. Well, that's, that's good to be there. We need to stay there sometimes. We need to revisit that place. But don't stay there long. Call it what it is. Get out of that. 
cling to the promises of God, the power that He puts in our life through the Word, through the Spirit. That's what this is all about. Sir? Piper and MacArthur had a, had a good um, uh, description on this. Piper said, sin is what you do when your heart is not satisfied with God. MacArthur had it by saying that sin will enslave you unless you prize God above all else. True enough. And it's that simple. It's that, might put it, it's that fine a line, that fine of a line. Because, you know, the more, I don't want to say successful because it's all of Christ, but, the, you know, the more mature we are in our Christian walk, the sneakier he gets. That's just all I can say. <laughs> or the sneakier. I mean, there's always, that evil presence is always looking for a way in. Why? Why? Because that person who is closest to God poses the greatest threat against evil. That's the person who's going to affect the most people for good. That's the person to whom God is working through. It's just, it's a law. And Paul, he told us about that. He said, I find a law when I would do good, when I want to do good. When I get up in the morning and I do, I literally do this sometimes. Before my feet hit the floor, I literally pull my feet up just as a reminder. And pray right there on the side of the bed. He says, when I would do good, he was present with me. It's going to be there. Paul expresses, fourthly, Christian hope. Only Christians express Christian hope. We find in verse 25 where he says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Simple enough, enough said. And then fifthly, the interpretation harmonizes with Paul's theology elsewhere. Well, and there's probably a number of places we can go, but I only marked one scripture from Galatians 5, 16 and 17. And Paul writes there, he says, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now, we could do one whole lesson on that right there. We really could. Walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And we could talk about the fact that, yeah, that, that, that flesh is still there, about the effort that's involved in walking in the Spirit of God, and where we find our strength to do that. We could go on and on with that. I love how succinct it is. And then in verse 17, he says, For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. He's acknowledging this continual battle, this continual rub. And these, he says, are contrary one to another. So that you do not do the things that you wish. That's exactly what he's talking about. Exactly, is it not? That's what he was talking about here as we begin reading in verse 14. So just a couple of things from that verse 14 and 15. We know he says that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions. And he explains this term, I am of the flesh. Actually, he explains it in, this, in these passages down in 23 where he ends that verse there by, by referring to sin as the sin that dwells in my members. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about that fleshly presence. He's not talking about the fact that he's totally dominated by sin in the world. That's, that's not his frame of reference here at all. It's this fleshly principle. In fact, if you really want to get after this, 
And I, I like to use, uh, in uh, my study, I use MacArthur Commentary. But if you go look at these verses there, he's going to tell you that throughout this whole passage here, uh, it's divided up into what he would refer to as four laments. And he'll break that out for you. And with each of those four laments, you'll find a condition, you'll find a proof, and you'll find a source, okay, which will take you much, much deeper into this. Obviously, a whole lot more information than we could ever do here. But I hope that whets your appetite and challenges you to do that. So he refers to this fleshly principle. Verse 16 for I do not do what I want, I agree with the law that it is good. What do we know about the law from this perspective? We know that it's there. It brings the knowledge of sin. I alluded to that a moment ago. We also know that we cannot keep the law. We cannot do that. We cannot be saved through the law. That's not going to happen. And Paul's gearing us up here. He's going to tell us where his great hope is he's going to talk about the grace of God at the end here he knows full well the power and the extent of the law but it cannot save why is that important this morning that we know and realize that why is that important that we revisit that how did I start out this morning talking about the temptation sometimes to fall into legalism even over this very thing We're not going to find it in the law. We must turn to the grace of God. There is nothing else. Nothing else. Verse uh, 18. Paul says that nothing good dwells in my flesh. He knows that. He has the desire to do what is right, but he doesn't have the ability to carry it out. I think about, you know, Paul, arguably the greatest Christian who ever lived. And I think about him dealing with this. Having had the experiences in his life that he has had, having received direct revelation from Jesus Christ, you know, to say nothing of his, his you know, dynamic conversion and so forth, and what has happened to him, seeing the power and the miracle of God not only in his own life, but as he's been an obedient as an apostle and ministered, to others, that Paul still has to go somewhere and reflect upon his flesh, the difficulties that he has in life. And you know, the Bible gives us a couple of examples. I think a lot of times when we study about Paul, we don't, we're not inclined to look for things in Paul's earthly life or fleshly life that were difficult. Of course, we know that a couple of them are there. I don't know. I think perhaps in Acts 16, verse 37 where he and Silas were at Philippi and they were beaten. And then, uh, as always, they were beaten and people who were beaten on them didn't realize they were Roman citizens. And once they found out they were Roman citizens, they come to him and say, you know, know, here's the back door. You know, let's get out of town. Come on. Well, do you know what Paul's response is there? He says, are you kidding me? If I can paraphrase. They've beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans. He says, let them come themselves and get us out. What do you see there? (laughs) Maybe just a little bit of, you know, Paul have any pride? 
Can you answer that? From the Word of God, can you answer that this morning? Was pride a problem with Paul? Anybody? How about 2 Corinthians 12, 7? Where because of the abundance, it says, of the revelation given to Paul, because of the abundance of the revelation, what did God have to do? What did He see as necessary in the life of Paul in order for him to be able to minister and to, to step up and do what God had laid out for him to do? What was necessary? He got a thorn in the flesh. And he tells it plain. He said, lest I be exalted above measure. The flesh. And you'd think, ah, you know, if, if Jesus was here, you know, if He was handcuffed to me, okay, right with me, if I had received direct revelation from Jesus Christ Himself, I'd be done with the flesh. Listen, the flesh is a principle in our life. We don't just sin. We have a sin problem. Christ has taken care of that through the cross. Hallelujah. You would think, oh, it's over for Paul. I mean, got that little glow over him, you know, little halo. No. Why does God choose to do that? Why doesn't He just wave His hand Make us perfect. He don't do that. I don't know why. But I know He gets glory. He gets glory when our lives reflect Him. And because of the flesh, we have to get to that point of humility. We have to get to that point of confession. Being real. I love the example that we find with that prodigal son. I love that phrase. It says, but when He came to the end of Himself. That's where we got to go. Paul had to go there. It's not any different from anyone. Why? Because all the glory for anything spiritual that is ever done goes to God. He's a jealous God, is He not? Is that not how one of the words the Bible uses to describe Him? And He can be because He's the great I Am. He's it. He's existence itself. He's compared to nothing. He's God. And we don't have a right even in our service to Him, to sneak in and take a little credit. It's all because of Him. Totally because of Him. Verse 21, Paul acknowledges the everyday presence of evil and temptation. In verse 21, I shared that with you, but I didn't share a following verse. Job again saw that. We shared Job's insights last week on a different verse. In Job 30, 26 Job says, but when I look for good, evil came to me. Job knew about the battle. He knew about it. In verse 22, Paul identifies with his new self. The new birth has been created. He makes that reference to inner being. There's a different part of him. It's not two natures as we said last week. It's one nature, but with an unhealthy fleshly influence that continues to reside. And he says in verse 23, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind. We can't get away from this warlike term, can we? Waging war 
continual battle. In the law of my mind, and I looked at the use of the word mind there, here and both in verse 25, and it's the same. He's referring to his inner self. He's not referring to, you know, cognitive reality. That's not what he's talking about, you know, that from which we get, you know, intellectual assent. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about his inner self, the totality of his inner self, what he's all about, his new nature, his true nature, not the exception that's manifested by the flesh, which he hates. That's the use of the word mind here. So he sees this war going on against the law of his mind, and he says, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members, that is in my flesh. With all that's going on, with all that has happened in the life of Paul through his own justification, sanctification, his continual sanctification, he's been regenerated, he's looking for glory, he knows he's going to be with God, and yet this fleshly thing continues to pop up. Don't you think it should be different for the Apostle Paul? Arguably the greatest Christian in the world that's ever lived? It's not. It's all about Christ. It's all about His grace. It's all about our need for Him. Paul tells us in talking about the law, you know, if you offend in one area of the law, it says in one play, I can't remember, shouldn't quote or talk about Scripture, I can't go to, but I'm doing it now because you know it's true. You know, you offend in one area. What are you? Guilty of all. That's the level of perfection you're up against. Just mess up in one small area. If you can find a small area of sin in the Ten Commandments, just one little area and you're guilty of all. That's reflective of holy and righteous God. Thank God He's provided for us. And you miss that boat? You try to get in some other way as a thief or a robber? You try to go through some other door than what God has provided through the death of cross or death of Christ on the cross? You can't get in that way. It does not work. Not even you can't bring anything with you. Nothing. Not a thing. And this is why we often go back and people go back and they, they look at their experience. It's, that's not a bad thing. Their salvation experience. That's not a bad thing. You go back and you look at it. You know, I've been guilty in my ignorance as a young believer. I, I've told people before, you know, you get saved, you write, write it down in your Bible. You write that down. Okay? That's okay. Nothing wrong with that. I don't have a date. I remember the experience for me, but I don't have a date. But you're not saved because you wrote a date in your Bible. And you're not, your salvation is not proved because you can do that. Your salvation is proved when your life changes. Now, that's not to say that we don't have struggles. That's what we're talking about, is it not? <laughs> From Romans 7. We know the remedy. We know what's there. We know the reality of the battle. As we said first lesson, we're not ignorant of Satan's devices. That's what this is about, to prepare us. And we move on. I like John. John puts it this way when he's talking about sin and sinners. If you sin, you don't go to heaven. And we, we, get, we get taken back with those verses. 
John's talking about habitual sin. We practice sin. That, that which identifies us, that which is characteristic of who we are and our nature. He's certainly not talking about a battle with sin because Paul says that's all of us. He's talking about when sinful thought, worldly thought dominates our actions. That's what we're about. We're about getting more. We're about being seen in the right light. We're about being with the right people at the right time for monetary sakes or for reputation's sake or whatever. When we're about those kinds of things. When we find excuses not to minister. When we know we're sitting in church and the only reason we're there is we really can't wait till it's over. There's a problem. There's a problem. That doesn't speak of a person who's been changed on the inside. And how do we deal with sin? When we realize that it's there, we deal with it as Paul dealt with it. We call it what it is. We go to the Word of God that tells us what sin is. And then we reflect upon the grace of God that's been made effective in our life because it is powerful. It is the overcomer for us. It works. It works all the time. And it's the only thing that does. Lastly, he says, thanks be to God, in verse 25, that through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Paul is not residing himself to this. He's not saying, I mean, you know, it's not a 50-50 proposition with Paul serving God, you know, fighting against the flesh. He's just simply saying it's not going to stop. This is the way it's going to be. This is the way it will continue. But what we do know about the power of God in our life, as we continue to grow in mercy and in grace, we grow, as Peter says, in the grace of God, we do become stronger. And incidents, episodes, if you will, of Sin, certainly gross sin, become, uh, you know, if they're not eradicated, they're less and less and less in our life. Why is that? Because the power of God is real. It's the other things that we struggle with. It's those things that we talked about that are referred to as, uh, I just lost the word, respectable sins. Those are the things that we struggle with. They separate us from the presence of God, too they'll separate us as well. So we give attention to those. What else? Almost finished. We've got just a few minutes. I won't get everything out because we were going to go to Romans 6 and look at verses 11 through 19. Because we look at this and sometimes folks just get confused you know and they say well if sin has no dominion over us and why does Paul say that we must not let it reign you know is there a conflict there if we're really dead to sin you know why do we still struggle with sin you can read Romans 6 11 let me just read it Romans 6 11 through 19 if you will likewise you also reckon yourselves to be dead Indeed to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. Now keep in mind, we're a full chapter before chapter 7 here. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. 
And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, born again, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. I don't know about you, but that seems to be much more clearer now based on what we've just talked about. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but you are under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are under law, but, uh, but under, or not under law, but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? See, that focuses upon the life lived we just talked about. Our manner of life. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. You heard the Word. You believed the Word. That is the motivation of your heart is to embrace the Word of God and to live by the Word of God. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. This is what belief in the Word of God does. That testifies of Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It frees us from sin because of His work. That's what it does. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh, for just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanliness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness. For holiness. That to me is much clearer. But when you read it, you almost want to read chapter 7, and particularly this portion of chapter 7, 14 through 25. Read it in light of all of Romans 6. Romans 6 talks about, says, Christians have died to the authority of sin. Christians have died to the authority of sin. And then in chapter 7, Paul reminds us that we're dead to the influence of sin. Sin is still there. Sin can be an overcomer if we let it. Before salvation, we had no power against it. But since we're indwelt by the very presence of God through the Holy Spirit, that's not the case anymore. Not the case. We're without excuse, you might say. We don't have an excuse. In Romans 6, Paul says we're not the slaves of sin. But in 7, he reminds us that we're still at war. The bondage of sin is broken. The conflict with sin continues. And it will continue. And that's why we're well advised to be in church on Sunday morning and to be involved in prayer groups and to be involved in studying the Word of God and listening from others, brethren, sisters, who are fighting the same battle that we are, who are walking this pathway for God with the Word of God indwelling them. I tell you what, this is where it's at. This is where it's at. We ought to be thankful to God today. I'm sure that you are. Second Peter 3, 14, 16, I'll finish up. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace without spot and blameless, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, 
as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all the epistles, speaking in them of these things in which we are, or sometimes things, he says, hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also in the rest of the scriptures. This is interesting. Of course, you know, by this time, Paul's lived his life and had his ministry. He's dead and gone. Peter's talking about Paul. You know, it's interesting to note that he calls what Paul did scripture. I like that. Talks about what he said. And then he says something about Paul. He says, you know, some of what he gave us, things that I just read that oftentimes seem like they go against one another, things we just shared. He says plainly right here in the Bible, they're hard to understand sometimes. They're hard to understand. But I don't know how a black cow eats green grass and gives white milk. But right here, the longer, the longer you dwell on this, the more clearly you'll see it. And you'll be thankful. As a believer, you'll be thankful to a greater degree for the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life and this precious, precious Word of God that we have and to be a part of a church that preaches the Word of God. This church is about Jesus Christ. It's about the Word. It's so, so refreshing. Peter says also in 1 Peter 2.11, he says, Behold, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. That's the way we must see ourselves. We're just passing through. We've been thrown out of the world. Sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. He could have easily have said there, put it to death. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. He's talking to believers, which what? Here we have it again. Wage war against your soul. If you don't think you're in a war, then you don't take it seriously. You're not going to prepare. You're going to wind up on the battlefield with no armor. Paul gives us the armor, does he not? He tells us where to go for it. What we need is grace. And I'll end with Romans 8 too. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, thank You for Your goodness to us this day. Thank You for Your Word. And I pray, Lord, that You will take Your Word and make it do its work in our heart and life, Lord. Give us the courage to be obedient to it each and every day. And may Christ be exalted. May our life point to Him. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.